Take your Bibles and turn to the book of Acts, chapter 7. Can you imagine being so upset that you believe that somebody might want to kill you? Imagine somebody just getting so upset with you just because of something that you believe. I mean, Socrates, of course, met a fate like that, an untimely death in Athens because the people said he was corrupting the youth with his philosophy. I was trying to think of times that I've personally seen people that, you know, were really upset like that and wanted to do violence. By the way, thinking about that stresses a person out. I can remember being kicked out of a church with my friends as we were speaking uh, because the leadership there was not open to the gospel. Uh, now, that doesn't compare, though, with what Stephen had to face in Acts 7. People were so upset, physically threatened him. And this was not because, you know, he called their mother ugly. It was not because he kicked their dog. It was not because he, you know, threatened them or pointed a gun at him. It was all because they found the gospel so repugnant. They could not acknowledge their sin. That truth was was too much to bear for them. For them, the messenger had to be killed. That's Acts 7. Let's stand up as we look at this passage together. Now, when they heard these things, they were enraged, and they ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened, and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. And when they heard these things, they were enraged, and they ground their teeth at him. Enraged is a term that means to be so emotionally affected that they are violent. They were furious, and they were abusive. Why? Well, the text tells us why because of the things that they heard. Now, Stephen has finished telling them. Actually, he hasn't really finished because they bum-rushed him before I think he could even finish this sermon. But they interrupted him, and they were violent. It's hard to imagine stronger you, uh, words used to describe the Sanhedrin here, this Jewish council who they thought they had Stephen cornered, propping up lying witnesses and false evidence, and instead... Stephen points to the council, and he says, you're the ones that are liars. You're actually murderers. You have murdered God's messengers. They were hypocrites of the law, and they didn't want anybody to expose them for who they really were. And so Stephen yeah, I mean, he was supposed to defend himself. He's speaking more like a judge than a prisoner. 
it's an interesting idiom, ground their teeth at him. It's kind of a, a mixture of, of rage and frustration. They could not wait to get their hands on him, but they were frustrated because they didn't quite know how to respond to him. In chapter 6, they had to kind of confer, and, 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 they, and they didn't know how to respond. They didn't have words to any logic to come back at Stephen because of his wisdom. They were caught. Jesus said in, in Matthew 8, 12, and in 24, 51, and in Luke 13, 28, these hypocritical Jewish leaders would face a gnashing of teeth, a weeping and gnashing of teeth. That's used numerous times throughout the Gospels. They rejected Christ the Messiah, and now they are kind of hot with anger because their sin is going to be shown to them. It's so interesting. To me, what's interesting is that they continue this attitude. I mean, not only here on earth, but people continue that attitude in hell. I know some people say, well, how is it that you can be you know, cast to hell for eternity for a finite number of sins on earth. Well, it's because there's not a finite number of sins. People continue to reject God even in hell. You would think in judgment that, I mean, when the, all the facts are right there, that people would, they would repent. I mean, they see the, the, the wrong that they've done. But they don't. People will continue to curse God in hell. On earth, they reject God and they are angry. In hell, they continue to reject God, only they are angrier. Now, of course, judgment, this kind of talk, do not do this in church. If you want people to attend your church, don't talk about judgment. It is not cool. It's better to just see this in some metaphorical sense that maybe instead of, you know, God judging people, it's just some yearning for human justice or something. Passages about humans being judged for their sin by holy God, uh, you can either reject it or you can respond to it with great humility. The fact is, is that people continue to curse and hate God. That people hate the grace of God. They hate the gospel because they do not want to acknowledge their sin on earth. So what do you think people will do when they're faced with judgment for their sin? You'd think that they would repent when all the facts are before them. That's not the record. Revelation tells us this. Listen to this. Revelation 16. And by the way, this is not a lone occurrence. It happens multiple times throughout Revelation when people are faced with judgment. The fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast, and its kingdom was plunged into darkness. People gnawed their tongues in anguish. You'd think, man, things are really bad. I mean, just admit you were wrong. Uh, confess, do whatever. And curse the God of heaven for their pain and sores. They did not repent of their deeds. I mean, it's, it's like this insane fanaticism against God. And that is exactly what Stephen was facing. Doesn't matter that, you know, people were religious about it. They hated the God of reality. But he, 
full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Now, what a contrast. Here you have in verse 51, the Jewish leaders rejecting the Holy Spirit. And here in verse 55, Stephen being filled with the Holy Spirit. Of course, depending on what tradition you come from, what happens when you're filled with the Holy Spirit? Well, despite people's you know, ideas about what that is, I think everybody agrees that when you're filled, that's going to bring you peace and truth and love. You're, you're accepting of truth and love, and there's unity. But when you reject the Holy Spirit, and, and Christians can reject the Holy Spirit, right? They cannot be filled and continue with, with, with unrepentance. When you reject the Holy Spirit, what do you usually find? Anger, refusal to resolve issues with people, continued bitterness, you know, people who don't want to talk to one another, disunity. We blame God. We kind of we bring God in our little games that we play. Do we not? You know how, you know, I'm just letting God lead me, and then people go off on a tirade. Or, you know, God told me to leave as they continue to, to slander, be bitter, unforgiving, refusing to reconcile like in a marriage or with brothers and sisters in Christ, claiming to be, you know, led by God or led by the Spirit, filled with the Spirit, wallowing in anger, bitterness, refusing to admit any faults. Listen, all of those are bogus claims. When you are filled with anger and bitterness, that's not the Holy Spirit. You're not being filled with the Spirit. The Spirit of God always brings the the peace and the, and the love and the unity. It says in verse 55 that there was one man full of the Holy Spirit, and he is facing a group of hate-filled leaders rejecting the Holy Spirit. Now, we might be prone to think that it's Stephen who loses out on this, because obviously we know how it ends. He's stoned. So Stephen is controlled by the Spirit, but he ends up being stoned. The Spirit of God is filling him, meaning he's, he's in fellowship with the Spirit. He, he's yielding to the Spirit. He's yielding to the Word of God. And he looks up to heaven, and what does he see? The text says he sees the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Now, I don't want us to miss, I think, what is the largest point here. And that is that that God's presence was there for Stephen in the middle of persecution. Put that in bold lettering, and I think it's one of the main points of application we can gain from this passage, that God's presence was there for Stephen in the middle of this incredible hardship. And I believe that God will provide his presence for us as we are yielded to him. Now, He's there in reality, but I mean his manifest presence to give us confidence and courage in the moment. Now, for Stephen, that meant a vision. Now, we know the Scripture says that that no man has seen God the Father. So, what was this glory of God that the passage says that Stephen saw? Some people say it was like, the Shekinah glory of God, maybe some kind of cloud there in the vision like you saw in the, in the Old Testament. That could be. And perhaps it's, it's something else or, or even both of those. 
For instance, when the disciples were questioning Jesus in Mark 10.37, this is what they said. They said, grant us to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. And then in John 17, 3 through 5, when Jesus was praying to the Father, he said this, and this is eternal life, that they know you, the one true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you've sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do, and now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. In other words, after his time on earth, Jesus would be the embodiment of the glory of God. Stephen sees Jesus, and being full of the Holy Spirit, he's able to face his accusers, and he's able to offer mercy and forgiveness. How is that? He's confident of the presence of God. God is his security. God is his identity. God's got his back. God's going to take care of his future. God is with him. And that gave him confidence in that moment. Is it any different for us when we go through a hardship? Cannot God show up like that for us? I believe there's a hearty amen that that happens. 1 Peter 4.14 says this, If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed, or you could say happy, because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Stephen was met with God's glory. What do we have? The spirit of the glory of God. Stephen could face his accusers and persecutors with confidence. They rejected God's presence by rejecting Jesus and the Holy Spirit. Stephen was full of God's presence. What happens to us when we're persecuted, when we're accused? We are blessed by God. God has not given us a spirit of what? Fear, but of power, love, and a sound mind. His presence and his power are there for us to access and abide in. They strengthen us. They give us confidence as we yield our hearts to him. I think Stephen was prepared because his heart was yielded. In this moment, he wasn't fighting with God. There was not a bunch of unconfessed sin. He was in fellowship, and God was able to give him this confidence. Uh, did you notice something about Jesus, what his posture was? He's standing to greet Stephen. Now, commentators have a lot of different options as to uh, the first one, probably the, the uh, one that's said by most, is that he was being greeted by Jesus. It was like Jesus was recognizing his martyrdom that was about to take place, and, and uh, it was almost a way of honoring Stephen. Uh, that could be. It's kind of cool to think of Jesus honoring the first martyr in the church. That's what Stephen is. And like the, the perfect high priest, you know, who's, who's there to, to help us in our need, here Jesus gets up to, to encourage to help Stephen in his time of need. That's a cool thought. There's something else I'd like for us to consider in addition to this idea. That Jesus standing is related 
to a reference to him being the son of man. Now, that was actually Jesus' most common uh, reference to himself. It's used 81 times in the Gospels. It's a messianic claim that Jesus is representative of, of all humankind. In fact, Daniel uses this reference of son of man of Jesus in one of his prophecies in Daniel 7. Listen to this. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion. Notice what's attached to this. Dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. As the Son of Man, Jesus is in a position of authority over every nation, a position of dominion over every people. And along with that comes his ability to judge. He's at the right hand of God. It's a place of honor and authority. Jesus is the one that will execute justice in the world, he's got it covered. He'll take care of it. I mean, don't you sometimes want to throw something at the TV when you watch the news? Like, how can people be so stupid? When's this going to stop, right? I mean, the thing that gives me, gives me hope is that God is the great vindicator. He'll take care of it. I don't have to get all frothy and... and all angry and stressful about it, God will take care of it. He's in a position of honor and power. Stephen did not have to worry about justice being executed in this situation. God would have it. In fact, Jesus knew this all along. And when he, before he was crucified, he pointed to this with Caiaphas, the Jewish high priest. Listen to this. This is in Matthew 26, verse 57, and you jump to 62 and 64. It says, Then those who had seized Jesus led him to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders had gathered. And then in verse 62, And the high priest stood up and said, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But Jesus remained silent, and the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. And Jesus said to him, You have said so. But I tell you, from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Fast forward to Acts 7. Guess who the high priest is in power? It is still Caiaphas. He was ruling during this time. Could it be that Caiaphas remembered the word of Jesus? That he was coming back to judge these unrighteous religious leaders? But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. I mean, these leaders became so enraged, they literally 
were, were screaming, covering their ears. It's an amazing thing to picture. See, I think in their minds, they're thinking, Stephen is so blasphemous, right? It just couldn't stand to hear anymore. Well, in reality, what they couldn't stand was to hear the indictments against their character. And so they kill him. They had no reason. They had no scripture to defend themselves in a legitimate sense. All they had at their disposal at that point, they thought, was violence, intimidation. You know, it's interesting, isn't it, that the Jews were not allowed to execute anyone without the permission of Rome, which is why they appealed to Roman authorities before they crucified Jesus. Here, they are so enraged, they just kind of skip over that. It's like this temporary insanity. They couldn't help themselves with this mob rule. Most legal formalities were just set aside. At least we could say this. Let us never say that the word of God doesn't have an effect on people. Whether it's in acceptance with humility or even rejection with an angering rage, God's word is a piercing tool ready to cut through the heart. The Jewish court required two witnesses for capital punishment. The guilty party take outside the city walls, and historians tell us it was a cliff about 10 to 12 feet high, and they threw the person over the cliff. That would more than likely impede their ability to get away. The first witness then would push as large a boulder as they could possibly get and drop it on the person. And if that didn't do the trick, the second witness would take a boulder as large as possible and push it on top of the person. And it tells us here, though, that people were taking off their garments. So it gives us the idea, and they got just smaller stones in their hands, so they took off their garment so they wouldn't be unhindered as they threw. And in a note of great irony, it says that there was a young man named Saul who was watching the garments. Saul, introduced to us for the first time. An unrepentant Saul, who was a persecutor of Christians, who was a a participant in murder. I think it's cool that the way Saul's life would finish would not be the way that it began or that we read about here in Acts 7. Dubious starts don't keep God from giving us a glorious finish. Certainly true in Saul's case. When we reflect on how quickly a dignified high court was transformed into a lynch mob, I think we can see the veneer of civility and judicial order in a society. And I think we see that now in our society. It's especially true when a society has has no sound moral foundation like ours is, is losing. When a society rejects religious truth, especially God's truth in the Bible, and then people are subject to the whims of political leaders. I was reflecting on this at our unity event yesterday. 
And all the attempts that our society has as Humpty Dumpty has fallen as in pieces and we look at this racial divide and social economic divide, what can people turn to but some kind of politics, some, some education, some more government programs? But these have very little impact when people find their identity and their significance separate from the God who created them. I believe every worldview is lacking to provide a basis for value in human beings outside of a worldview that sees the revelation of God given to us, that we were made in the image of God. Therefore, everyone is deserving of of love and and respect. And starting there, we realize also then that that we live in in a moral universe that God has installed in this world. So we cannot be surprised that when a nation rejects these truths, it rejects God as the creator, it rejects God's moral order, it rejects the identity of human beings being found, being made in the image of God. When we lose those kind of moorings, we no longer respect God's law, we get what we're getting. The Sanhedrin cried out in anger in favor of violence. What does Stephen do? He cries out for God not to hold their sin against them. This is another interesting contrast between Stephen and these religious leaders. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. Stephen's prayers show his, his confidence in going immediately into the presence of Jesus upon his death. After being pummeled from the stoning and no longer being able to stand, he utters these last words, echoing the words of Jesus as well, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Do not hold this sin against them. You know, that was actually a a part of Jewish prayers, normal daily prayers. It ought to be a part of our daily prayers. Do not hold this sin against them. Imagine the difference in your life if you pray daily, Lord, don't hold this sin against them. Think of the conflict in your life. Think of the rancor that you might have towards others who have hurt you. Lord, do not hold this sin against them. You may have to pray that prayer a hundred times a day. Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Your head hits the pillow. You're replaying the hurts. You're thinking, man, if I see that person in the grocery store, I'm going to give them the... Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Do not hold this sin against them. I want us to take note that I think that God answered Stephen's prayer. I do. First of all, Jesus did receive him. He received his spirit. And there was one that God did not hold his sin against, and that was Saul. Because obviously he would later undergo a dramatic conversion. He'd become the greatest missionary of all time. And some may wonder, how would Stephen, a a godly man, how could he have met such a horrible fate? I mean, why didn't God do something dramatic 
Wouldn't the story have been much better if God would have just delivered Stephen from the stoning? I mean, wouldn't it have been cool to see an angel come and just slay all those people? I mean, there. God, the ultimate superpower, superhero, slaying them. There, you got what's coming to you. I believe God did do something dramatic. He gave Stephen, in that moment, the grace to forgive. Now, I don't know about you, but I think that's far more amazing and dramatic, knowing the way we are as human beings and what our natural bent is. Wouldn't you want to defend yourself? Wouldn't you want to cry out how wrong they are? Steve had already yielded himself to Jesus. I think it's amazing. It gave him the confidence that he could could proceed with this. He could make it through this. I have a feeling that if we could somehow call up heaven, talk to Stephen right now, and say, hey, would you have rather been saved from the stoning or enter into the fellowship of Christ's sufferings? I think he'd say, don't ever take the easy way out. I don't want us to miss the fact that God used this event from a historical standpoint kind of shifted the attention away from the Jewish people and now to the Gentiles. They had rejected Christ, and now the Gentiles are going to get this vast missionary movement. God was doing amazing things through this tragedy. He created something beautiful. Do you know that there have been more Christians killed in the last 100 years that in all the centuries combined since the church started, the last 100 years. It's an amazing stat. Janet and I had the pleasure of meeting Elizabeth Elliot shortly after Janet and I were married. Her husband, Jim Elliot, was one of the five American missionaries killed in Ecuador in 1956. The, the story was in the national news. There's a wonderful documentary, by the way, titled Beyond the Gates of Splendor. Get it. View it. It's truly inspiring, Beyond the Gates of Splendor. You certainly see there that God cannot be contained by torturers and murderers. Steve Saint, who was the son of Nate Saint, one of the five missionaries killed in Ecuador, tells his story and I think illustrates how God can take a tragedy and turn it into something beautiful. Check this out. 